Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi says the voting age should be lowered to 16. In a speech to a mop closet she mistook for a feminist rally, Pelosi said, quote, Democrats need to get kids involved when they're totally ignorant and half out of their minds on hormones or will never get elected again, unquote. Pelosi then realized she was talking to a bunch of mops and said they should have the right to vote as well. Inspired by the speaker, high school students across the country have formed an activist organization called Teenagers Who Like Really Think It Would Be Cool to Vote and You Can't Stop Us, or Twilrit Wuk Viksu. The group's president, 16-year-old Thad Mellows, made his position clear in an essay he handed in two weeks late because his stupid little brother spilled Red Bull all over his laptop. The essay begins, quote, Why I Would Like to Vote by Thad Mellow. I would like to vote because I think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is really hot, and if I voted for her, I would get to meet her in person and show her how I can ride my skateboard down the concrete stairway in back of school while lighting a lighter with my tongue. Only this time I do it without cracking my skull and setting my face on fire, unquote. 16-year-old Victoria Plastic, who's also the president of the group, because why does the girl always have to be vice president just because she gets fewer votes, told an imaginary interviewer in this daydream she had, quote, if I could vote, I would vote for Democrats because they're for abortion. And Thad told me you couldn't get pregnant the first time. And I believed him because I thought a guy who was cool enough to get a dragon tattooed on his testicle wouldn't lie. So like now, what am I going to do? Unquote. Pelosi says voting rights should also be given to felons, illegals, dead Democrats, and Democrats who already voted earlier in the day. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Oh, hooray, hurrah. And speaking of young people, a new survey says that three out of five millennials feel that life is more stressful now than it has ever been before. They even listed their reasons. Sure, you know, a couple of generations ago, young men their age and much younger were charging into withering machine gun fire on the beaches of Normandy. But those guys didn't have to deal with micro stressors like slow Wi-Fi, breaking the glass on your cell phone or getting zero likes on social media. I mean, zero likes. No wonder they're stressed. One millennial book author, which isn't an oxymoron, but probably ought to be, says he's found the problem. It's capitalism. His arguments reveal a lot more about millennials than he thinks. We will take a look in just a sec. But first, let's talk about Lightstream. I know you do it. I do it. We use our credit cards without thinking it's money because it's this cool little plastic thing and you stick it in things and they give you stuff. Why would you even think about it? And then the bill comes due. And guess what? The average interest rate on credit card debt is over 18 percent. APR. Have you looked at your interest rate lately? The way to get around this, Lightstream. You can refinance your high interest cre credit card balances and save with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. You can get a rate as low as 6.14% APR with auto pay. The rate is fixed. It never goes up. And you can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 uh, and there are no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. You want to save even more. My listeners get an additional interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Andrew. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash 
Andrew. This is subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Andrew for more information. And remember, tomorrow is the mailbag. I will be back. You can see I'm in beautiful uh, Pittsburgh at the Hilton Hotel near the airport. And uh, But tomorrow I will be back in the studio and you can send your mailbag questions in now. You know how to do it. You go to dailywire.com. You hit the podcast button. You hit the Andrew Claven podcast, hit the mailbag. You have to be a subscriber. But if you are for a lousy 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks for the year, If you are a subscriber, you can ask me about anything you want. You can ask about your personal life, religious questions, political questions, and guess what? All my answers are 100% correct and will change your life, sometimes for the better. Other times, now you're just screwed. But, uh, But be there and we will answer your questions. So yesterday, I was really struck by this video we played a little bit of uh, these NYU kids accusing Chelsea Clinton of inspiring the New Zealand shooter by standing up to Ilhan Omer's anti-Semitism. Let's just play a little clip of that again. This right here is the result of a massacre stoked by people like you and the words that you put out into the world. And I want you to know that and I want you to feel that deep inside. 49 people died because of the rhetoric that you put out there. I don't think. What does I'm sorry you feel that way mean? What does that mean? See, I was I was really struck by the incredible level of buffoonery and moral arrogance. And I use the word buffoonery instead of stupid. I don't think these are stupid people. I just think they're buffoons because they know nothing and they know so little they don't even know that they know nothing. They're accusing a a woman of, of having something to do with a shooting on the other end of the world because she opposed anti-Semitism and they happen to like this Democrat and possibly have some kind of special feeling for Muslims feeling that they're intersectionally uh, privileged or something like this. And I was really struck with what buffoons they were and how morally arrogant they were to get in this girl's face, to get in Chelsea Clinton's face and say these things to her and accuse her with that tone of, as if they had no responsibility for anything and she was deeply responsible for what this lunatic in New Zealand did. It's an amazing level of of moral arrogance and stupidity. When I say stupidity, I mean ignorance, buffoonery. And at the same time, I was also struck with how unhappy they were. You know, how can you live a happy life thinking that other people, just because they disagree with you, uh, because they have uh, opinions that you don't share, are somehow have blood on their hands? How can you live with that level of moral arrogance, knowing in your heart of hearts, because we all know in our heart, heart of hearts, that we are not morally superior to anybody? In fact, we're nowhere near what we would like to be or what we should be. And we all know that. And it makes you unhappy when you have that kind of superior attitude and you're screaming at people, people who are your elders, by the way, and whom you should be respecting, Uh, right off the get-go, right there. So I was just taken with that. And then last night, I gave a speech at Franciscan University in um, Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, And Noel spoke there earlier, and some of the kids were just recovering from that. But other than that, this is a, I I found it a kind of magical place. It's a beautiful setting on on a side of a hill over the Ohio River and uh, right over the border from West Virginia and from Pennsylvania. Everything is bordered together here. And it's a very conservative school, uh, so it was a friendly audience, which of course was always nice, uh, and, and devoutly Catholic. And I was just struck 
with the fact that these kids were kind of the opposite of the kids in the video. I mean, I'm not going to talk about whether they were happy or not, because how do I know? I just met them. But they certainly had poise and intelligence and a view of the world informed by their Catholic teaching and their philosophical teaching, because they all had to take philosophy classes and Aristotle. They had a view of the world that made sense and that held together. And these were uh, men and women both. A lot of times these conservative groups are swing very heavily male. This was the opposite. Uh, and these were people, just young people of incredible poise, intelligence, worried about facing life because it's hard to be a young person. You know, it's always, you don't know what's out ahead. But but I was just really struck with the, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm searching for the word. It's not, it's not quite serenity because who's serene at that age, but it, it's a cognizance, it's awareness because they had a philosophy, a Catholic philosophical Western philosophy that made sense and that helped them make sense of the world as opposed to these horrible young people, poorly behaved, unhappy, angry young people screaming at their, their elders and their betters, I suspect in this case. Uh, and it was just an amazing difference, an amazing contrast. So here's a guy there's, I, that's open I did about the stress that young people are feeling. That's a real survey. They're just saying they feel terribly stressed. They're more stressed than ever before. Uh, when they break their cell phones, they don't get any likes. And, and these are millennials. So that's 1980, I think, to 2000. So you're talking about people from 19 to 39, probably skewing a little bit uh, younger than that. And a guy has written a book, a millennial guy has written a book. Uh, he's, he's a Marxist. And he wrote a book called Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. And uh, over, he, he's the editor of an online magazine, The New Inquiry. And he was interviewed by a millennial at Vox named Sean Illing. And Illing asked him, what makes the millennials the way they are? And he's, he says in this book that, he, that um, Harris is trying to find out why millennials are so burned out. Why are they having fewer kids? Why are they getting married later? Why are they obsessed with efficiency and technology? Why is it oh so very hard to be a millennial? And I know, you know, if, you, if you're like me, you sort of think the same thing. You think like, gee, you know, people who charged into Normandy, some of them were 18 years old. Uh, and maybe that was a little uh, harder than what these guys are going through. But they feel it. They feel that this is stressful. And it may just be relative stress. But here's what Malcolm Harris says. He says, this is the author of the book. He says, I take a very Marxist perspective on the world. So I'm looking at the dynamics of the labor market, the relationship between employers and the employed, basically the entire economic environment. These are the dominant forces shaping life in my view. What I focused on is millennials as workers and the changing relationship between labor and capital during the time we all came of age and developed into people. If we want to understand why millennials are the way they are, then we have to look at the increased competition between workers, the increased isolation of workers from each other, the extreme individualism of modern American society and the widespread problems of debt and economic security facing this generation. And one of the things is, because these people are 19 to 39, uh, a lot of them came of age under Clinton, Bush, and Obama. And some of these things, like the competition between workers and wages not going up, have been solved by Donald Trump. So I'm sure this Marxist is sitting there going, hooray for Donald Trump. Possibly not. But some of these things have been solved by a better economy the thing that always solves the economy, cutting taxes, cutting regulations, letting business do business, letting people compete and letting capitalism do its work. But he goes on with some other problems. Well, some of these things I'm going to talk about, I have some sympathy for. But before that, you know, some 
You can see here in this uh, room, you can probably see that there's, the light is shining down on me and I'm a little shiny up top. If, if you want to do that, it's a great way to contact Mars uh, through Morse code. But if you would rather be a little uh, hairier, then you might want to go to the hair club. Uh, hair club is the place that uh, has all is the leader in total hair solutions. They've got a legacy of success for over 40 years. They will craft a personalized solution to ensure you feel your best and get the most out of your hair. This is whether you're looking to revitalize the growth of your own hair or to learn more about the latest proven methods for hair replacement or restoration. Hair Club has professionally trained stylists, hair health expert, experts, and consultants who will help you make a plan not to look <laughs> like this. Get ready to love your hair and then write to me, please, and let me know how it feels. If you're a new client, just dial star star 004 from your mobile phone and they will shoot you a text to schedule your free hair health and scalp analysis right from your phone. That's star star 004 to get your appointment and get your free hair care kit and $250 of credit towards qualifying services. That's a total value of 300 bucks for new clients. Experience your hair and your life at its best. And again, let me know what that feels like. Only with Hair Club. I'm certain you will love the club. Okay. So he goes on, and Sean Illing, the interviewer, says, part of what you're saying is that modern capitalism, often referred to as neoliberalism for some reason, has created a world in which everything is about competition and self-interest and productivity. And as a result, corporations are squeezing more out of workers and making it harder for individuals to even think of themselves as part of a community. Is that more or less the picture you're painting? Malcolm Harris says, I mean, that's what neoliberalism is, right? We're all individuals, not members of a class or a community. We're all economic agents pursuing our self-interest. This is the basis of our whole society right now, and both Republicans and Democrats have signed onto it. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about what this guy is saying, because this, he doesn't really seem to have thought this through very carefully. First of all, if you go back to, say, the 50s, it was a capitalist time then. I think in some ways it was probably stronger capitalism, less uh, involvement from the government, less regulation from the government going on at that time. And were there communities? Yes, there was. What happened to break down the communities? Was it capitalism that broke down the communities or was it the death of other things like religion? Uh, was it the, the fact that welfare came into the home and said, we will do things, the government will do things for you that used to be done by your family, by your church, by your club, your Elks Club or whatever it was? Those, what they call mediating uh, institutions, have lost power because the government has gained power. There's nothing in capitalism that necessarily keeps you from being a community. The problem is, though, the community of socialism is a community of force. And this is what millennials, I think, and young people in general never, ever take into account. Socialism is about the state, right? The state never gives you anything without taking something. Now, if you have a church that you go to willingly, if you have a club that you join willingly, that's a community. But when Hillary Clinton says it takes a village to uh, raise a child, the village she's talking about is the government. Remember, Al Gore said the government is just things we do together, right? But no, it's not. The government is a power that is a power center that our founders warned us would generate more power 
all the time, which seek to expand and seek to get uh, better. That's why they enumerated in the Constitution its powers. And over the years, especially since the turn of the century, through court decisions and through bad governance, those powers have gone beyond, have expanded past the enumerations in the Constitution. That's what has destroyed family and community. It's not capitalism because we know this because we had capitalism in place before community fell apart. You know, and this is what this guy has been taught. And this is where the unhappiness comes in. This is where the unhappiness of those people. Just picture for a minute. Just picture for a minute a billionaire. Here's a billionaire, right? And here are three people. Here's one person who says, that billionaire has more than me, and I want some of what he has. I want to take some of what he has, so I have as much. Okay. Second person says, that billionaire has more than me, but I have what I need, and I don't care. The third person says... That billionaire has more than me, and I want what he has, and therefore I am going to do what he has done. I'm going to build a company. I'm going to do something incredible that people will pay me a billion dollars to do. Of those three people, which is the least happy? Surely it is the person who is envious. I mean, we know this. This is what envy does to people. Surely it's the person who says, I want to take something from him. He's got something that I want. Because they, they're picturing a world where there's just a pool of money and anybody who has some is taking some from you. And that's just not true. History has shown and proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is not true. Capitalism generates wealth. It makes new wealth so that there's always more wealth to be had. So if you, want, if you say, say, hey, I'm happy with what I've got. He's a billionaire. I hope he enjoys his yacht. I'm happy with my kids, my home, whatever. You know, then you're going to be happy and content. If you say, I want what he has and I'm going to build something, then you're going to be productive, excited. You're going to have a, a life of uh, thriving and enterprise and, and risk, and it's going to be exciting and dangerous. That's the choice you make. But you won't be unhappy like that envious guy. The thing is, it's the socialism. It's the increasing creep of socialism that has made people unhappy and the fact that he's going to a school that teaches him this stuff. And let's, let's talk about the schools for a minute because he's talking about the crushing weight of debt, and this is the thing that I sympathize with. Kids are getting out of school uh, with a lot of debt or or even worse, as far as I'm concerned, their parents have to pay a lot. They, they work uh, the entire life of the child. You work and you scrimp and you save and you put this away and then it all goes away to a place that has an incredible endowment and uh, a lot of money and yet you have to give it to them. You know, Cheryl Atkinson, Cheryl Atkinson is a great reporter, and she has a show now that's a kind of an internet show, but it's also on some TV stations throughout, uh, you know, throughout the country. Uh, it's called Full Measure, and Cheryl Atkinson is the reporter who was an investigative reporter and investigated stuff against George W. Bush, and they ran it on CBS, and then started to investigate stuff against uh, Barack Obama, about Barack Obama, and they wouldn't run it. And so she had to leave, and she has started this thing, Full Measure, uh, which is, uh, as I say, you can get it on some TV stations locally, or you can get it online. So she did a thing where she talked to kids about debt. And here's just some of these kids uh, talking to her, talking to uh, Cheryl Atkinson on full measure uh, about the fact that they're in debt. This is cut two. I think it's really sad that our country wants to charge like 18, 19, 20-year-olds a quarter of a million dollars to be educated, better, good quality citizens. I think, it's, I think that's ridiculous. Do you know how much debt you're going to have when you graduate? Yeah, my guess is somewhere around $30,000 or $40,000. Are you concerned about paying it back? Um, yes, I'm very concerned. You know, got to get a good job out of school, which is hard these days with the market the way it is. So just really, I, like I said, I have sympathy for this. Remember, these are NYU students. That's NYU is the place where Chelsea Clinton was being accosted like that. 
These are NYU students, and they're talking about society educating them. They're talking about society educating them to be good citizens, and it costs too much. Society is not educating them. NYU is educating them. And NYU is an, a capitalist organization that teaches them socialism. And not only is it a capitalist organization, it's a crony capitalist organization, which is unfair. Okay, so, so Cheryl Atkinson... Uh, interview this professor at NYU, Mark Crispin Miller, who's become an activist against the unfair way that people are, that kids are charged and how they have hidden uh, fees. After they take your, uh, your first payment, they come back with all these hidden fees. And he's talking to her about this and she asks him what causes it all. There are ten dollars to $20,000 worth of hidden fees at NYU, amounts of money that, that uh, the students didn't realize they were going to have to come up with. This has happened time and time again, students telling us they just sent me a bill for $2,000, etc. If you factor in the considerable hidden fees that NYU ends up charging, I think it is unquestionably the most expensive school in the country. Administrative bloat is what's costing all these kids so much money, costing their families so much money. I mean, it's really Gilded Age stuff, and um, it has no place in, in any uh, decent university. So what he's talking about with his administrative bloat, he's talking, first of all, the salaries, the high salaries they pay to administrators. And also, over the years, instead of hiring professors, instead of doing things that would enhance uh, the actual learning experience, NYU has bought real estate in New York, some, some of it very luxurious real estate in New York. It has, it, they hire these uh, administrators who do things like diversity, diversity administrators, diverse, the dean of diversity, the dean of... They're hiring people who are useless. I mean, that's a useless person. That's a person who has no worthwhile job, a diversity person. And that's what you're paying for. And you're paying for this incredible real estate they use to make their uh, school look attractive to rich people instead of hiring professors and making sure that these kids are getting the kind of uh, education that they should get. And so instead, you've got this mass. And, oh, on top of this, they're getting tax breaks because they're nonprofits, right? They're getting tax breaks while they're making fantastic profits with this incredible endowment and they're paying all that out to these administrative people who have no real jobs. While they're doing all that, they're getting tax breaks, and then they're teaching this girl who yelled at Chelsea Clinton about how to be socialist, okay? So this is a massive, unfair capitalist organization teaching these kids about to be socialists and to blame people. And no wonder they're angry. No wonder they're like that. I mean, on this report, which is a, a kind of incredible report, as I say, you can find it by Googling Cheryl Atkinson and um, uh, Full Measure. Uh, but in this report, she says that some of the women are now going out to these uh, uh, online services that basically turn them into prostitutes. They're called, what do they have one? They called it was a Sugar Baby University. Uh, this was specially tuned, this was specially keyed, the advertisement. We have an ad, she had an ad in there, but I think we can play it, that uh, basically was keyed specifically to university students. Do we have that ad? You can gain the personal connections you need to go from entry level to corner office. Enroll with Sugar Baby University today and get your education paid for by a generous sponsor. So, so the picture is, if, you couldn't, if you're not watching, if you're listening, the picture is this incredible sex pot with a low-cut sweater who looks like she's never been in a school in her life, uh, looking at a computer and then wearing glasses because now she's smarter. And she's smarter because she traded sex for money. And she interviews uh, a girl whose voice is disguised uh, and who's in the shadows. She interviews a girl about this. Here's, here's that interview. Let's be clear. A lot of the men do get into this because they want sex. Yeah. They do, 
but that doesn't mean you have to have sex with them. Just like if you meet someone with, off that site and you met them in person, that doesn't mean you have to have sex with them if you choose not to. So what did you ask for and what were you able to get? It was a time where I needed like $300 for the textbooks for class and I honestly didn't know how I was going to pay for them. Like I didn't really want to ask my parents. So he paid for all the textbooks. Like he was like, listen, I'm going to give you money so that you can take care of that because it's important. Now, Cheryl calls this uh, shocking and in, in one way it's shocking, one way it's not. I mean, obviously it's the oldest profession. So it's been going on for a long time. Women have been trading their bodies for cash for a long time. But it's shocking to have someone of this class and of this status in society, a student is a certain status in society, it's shocking to have someone like that do it. But this keys to another, this points to another thing about this generation and the millennials and the generation after them, that they are growing up in a world where a candidate for president can say this. This is Beto O'Rourke being asked about third trimester abortion, which is never, A, is, uh, not necessary, but any third trimester uh, kid can be saved, can be kept alive. So listen to the question and the answer. Are you for third trimester abortions or are you going to protect the lives of third trimester babies? Because, you know, there's really not a medical necessity for abortion. It's not a medical emergency procedure because typically third trimester abortions take up to three days to have. So you would, in that sense, if there was an, an emergency, the doctors would just do a C-section and you don't have to kill the baby in that essence. So are you for or against third trimester abortions? So the, the question is about abortion and reproductive rights. And, and my answer to you is that that should be a decision that the woman makes. Big cheers. Every single Democrat candidate, and I think there are 457 of them now, every single one has that attitude. Now, you're talking about a viable child. You're talking about a viable baby now. We're not saying what most of the laws are 20 weeks. At 20 weeks now, with science being what it is, uh, a baby can be viable. But all right, let's call that a borderline. That's 20 weeks, which is, again, five months. So it's not like this is not just a little dot in there. This is a full-grown baby. But never mind. Let's put that aside for a minute. This is a viable... He's, every single Democrat candidate is talking about being able to slaughter viable babies. Every single one of them. Now, let me ask you this, okay? Just think about this for a minute. If a, baby, a viable child is not a human being, who is? And what are you, okay? What makes you a human being? If a viable child is not a human being, then neither are you, neither am I. I mean, you're just a meat puppet. You're just a piece of meat whose life depends on the people who support you feeling that you are worthwhile, worth having, worth saving. This is an attitude. This is a philosophy. As I always tell you, you know, a philosophy makes sense. Somewhere along the line, philosophies make sense. And if your philosophy is that a viable baby can be killed, that a viable baby can be killed, then your philosophy is that you yourself and everybody around you is a meat puppet. If you're just a meat puppet, why not sell your body to pay your rent? Why not sell your body to pay for anything? Why not? You know, what, what's the diff? What is the diff? Now, of course, we know, we know that, that, that it's just not true. It's just isn't true. And a person who sells, listen, I, I've done, I've written novels that involve prostitutes. I've done a lot of reading and even talking to people about uh, prostitution and talking to prostitutes about it. 
This is not a happy thing. People who talk about sex work are talking about a pathology. Being a prostitute is a pathology. It's a sickness. It makes you feel awful. It usually comes along with somebody who's beating the crap out of you and taking your money, a pimp. You know, it's it's not, it, it is, it's a sickness. It is not just a profession. It's a form of, of neuro, neurosis. If we're living in a society which basically reduces you to this, you're not going to be a happy person. You're not going to be a happy person. That's the difference, I think, between what I saw at uh, Franciscan University in Steubenville. And this is after they listened to Knowles. They were still happy. What I saw there and what I see at NYU, where they're basically downloading this materialist socialism while running a highly lucrative organization. You know, and this, you know, I mean, in what is this thing they're doing in Maine now? In Maine, they want to change the law so that uh, not just doctors can perform abortions. This is their new push in Maine because, you know, if you're going to kill babies, everybody should have the fun. And why should, well, why should only doctors get to have the fun of murdering babies? You know, so that's their, what they're doing there. And then in Georgia, they're, pa- they're doing the other thing. They're passing a heartbeat bill, uh, which means that you can't abort a baby after six weeks when a doctor can detect a heartbeat. Obviously, both of these things are heading to the courts. They're going to meet up in the courts. We're going to have this conversation. And when we're having this conversation, this is what I want to know. What I want to know is if a baby who can be saved is not a human being, who is and why? What's the difference? What is the difference between a baby that can be saved and you? I just want, I want to hear what that argument is. I want to hear all these arguments uh, and, and how they go. And by the way, just to, to, if you're, if you're pr- of the praying sort, our friend uh, Obi-Wan Uju Ikiocha is addressing the EU today on this subject. Uh, and uh, she may have already done it. She was just going in uh, last I heard. But I hope she, I know she's going to do great. She asked me to wish her luck, but she doesn't need luck. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think when, when the idea of freedom is lost, when you can see that forcing you to give charity, it's not charity if it's forced, right? It's socialism. When you have socialism instead of charity, when you have government instead of community, when you have force instead of freedom, and when you have no dignity as a person because you're just a hunk of meat, you're going to be unhappy. You're going to be envious. You're going to have the, the, the worst of your emotions are going to seem legitimate to you. Because why shouldn't they? What is there higher than what you and your meat puppet factory are feeling? If you're feeling envy of a billionaire, then that envy of a billionaire gives you some kind of legitimacy. If you don't have a, a higher level of thought, a higher level of being in which to live in that thought, why shouldn't you act on your envy, your rage? Why shouldn't you get in a woman's face and accuse her of being responsible for uh, killing thousands and thousands of miles away? Why shouldn't you? You're going to be unhappy. You know, I think, I, and I, oh, I guess I have to take a break. I have to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Uh, come to dailywire.com and subscribe. You can watch the whole show right there. You don't have to jump around. Plus, you can uh, have your question tomorrow in the mailbag. Hit the podcast button, hit the Andrew Claven podcast, hit the mailbag, ask me anything you like. Answers guaranteed 100%. Correct. That's quite a deal for 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks for the year. You get the uh, Leftist Tears Tumblr and you get all your problems solved. Pretty good deal. So I think it was Molly Hemingway, uh, who, of the Federalist, who first pointed out that there's a cycle that the press goes through in their Trump hatred, uh, that they, they first they go into Russian collusion. Ooh, and where are the Russians? And here was Boris Badenoff and there was Natasha and, oh, you know, Paul Manafort and all these things who 
you know, they had the Russian collusion. And then that blows up because it's all nonsense. It's all completely ridiculous. And when that's exposed, they go into racism. Oh, the racism. He, it was Donald Trump. This shooter in New Zealand referenced Donald Trump. The image of him that we created inspired him. Uh, but, but it's somehow Trump's fault. And Trump says some of the same words. He speaks English and they speak English. It's incredible. And the connections are just endless. Who could say, you know, I mean, he walks upright and so do they. And then that falls apart and people start to kind of roll their eyes. And when all of that won't wash, they go back to the routine that he's crazy. Is Donald Trump crazy? And so that is the thing. Over the weekend, Donald Trump went back to his uh, tweeting. He sent out a tweet storm. And you've heard me say before that I thought uh, and still think that he pulled back after the midterms thinking that he would just let the Democrats be crazy. He would just let them be nuts uh, and sort of pull back a little bit because the, the midterm results sort of showed that people were turned off by him, especially people in the suburbs, especially women. And so I think he kind of took a little bit of a backseat. Now he's coming back. What I suspect, because I suspect so much of this is strategic with Trump. I, it's not a question of, of playing 3D chess or anything like that. It's just a question of political instinct. And I think he does a lot of this stuff on instinct. He feels that, okay, the... The Democrat uh, lineup is now a mosh pit. It's these people eating each other. By they have to apologize for every word that comes out of their mouth. I mean, Beto is going to spend the entire his entire campaign saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, I said that. Oh, and I'm sorry, I said I'm sorry, I said that. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I'm sorry. You know, that's what it's going to. And, and that just makes Trump look great because he never apologizes. So I think that Trump basically decided time to get back in the game. It's time to get back in the game. So he sent out a bunch of tweets about a bunch of subjects, and the press reverted to their old. Uh, idea that somehow this guy is crazy. So here is an MSNBC panel discussing this. Crazy times demand a crazy president. I mean, if this isn't nuts, and I'm not a clinical expert, but if you were to go back in time and on one day switch to this kind of presidential behavior in normal history, people would instantly think he's lost his grip. There are these spasms he has where he starts tweeting all this crazy stuff. I'm not sure what the cause is, but we become so dulled to Trump's madness. I don't know what it'll take. Does he have to go run around with an aluminum foil hat? He is clearly under some psychological duress here, and it, it I think, is a crisis level event. I mean, it's like they're on this, they're on a treadmill. They just keep coming back. It's, it's like one of those trains that keeps going past the same station over and over again. Bill Crystal, you know, Bill Crystal, the absolute never Trumper. Oh, how wise he is. So much wiser than the, those silly little Republicans who voted for Donald Trump. He says now because of these tweets, he all is justified at last. I've got to say this weekend, people who haven't agreed with me, people who have said to me over and over, oh, come on, Bill, the tweets are annoying and vulgar and even a little bit, uh, you know, uh, disagreeable, let's say, for a president. But, you know, the tax cuts are good and the judges are good. I, I say this weekend, a few people said, you know, maybe this really shows that he's not, you know, stable. He's not he doesn't have the psychological uh, state to be trusted as president, and especially for an additional four years. You know, Bill Crystal was good when Harry met Sally, but since then, I think he's gone downhill. Uh, you know, let's let's take a look at what Trump t tweeted. Let's see. Is he is he crazy? He tweeted about Christopher Steele. He says, Trump, this is the tweet report. Christopher Steele backed up his Democrat and crooked Hillary paid for fake and unverified dossier with information he got from send in watchers of low rating CNN. This is the info that got us the witch hunt. This is true. Christopher Steele in a, a piece of his testimony testimony that was released admitted that he relied on unverified reports from CNN websites, people who would just send in their uh, their comments, basically. Uh, CNN has an iReport website, and 
these things are the basis is just randos sending stuff in. CNN calls them it's citizen journalism. Christopher Steele relied on citizen journalism. He relied on the comments section at CNN. That's essentially what it is. And this was what the FBI used to get their FISA warrant to spy on the Trump campaign. Now, I mean, just for a minute, clear the clouds away, the MSM clouds away, and think about this for a minute. This is the information, comments from CNN, and you know what the comment section is like a lot of times in these sites. Comment section from CNN was used by the FBI to get permission to spy on an opposition political campaign, opposition to the administration in power. If there were, if these guys were journalists, if there were journalists, if there were such things as journalists, they would be more shocked than Trump. Trump wouldn't have to be tweeting it out. Here's another one, another tweet. What the Democrats have done in trying to steal a presidential election, first at the ballot box, and then after that failed with the insurance policy, is the biggest scandal in the history of our country. Biggest scandal in the history of the country, typical Trump overspeak, but it is a huge scandal. And now there's more uh, testimony coming out, the testimony from Strzok. You know, remember Strzok and Page, Peter Strzok, the former FBI agent who was having the affair with Lisa Page and was texting her about it, and he texted to her uh, that... He, he, there's got to be an, an insurance policy. Uh, and it, it's very unclear. He says, I want to believe the path you threw out, Lisa Page threw out, for consideration in Andy's office, Andy McCabe, that there's no way Trump gets elected. But I'm afraid we can't take that risk. It's like an insurance policy in the unlikely event you die before you're 40. So last Thursday, Doug Collins, who's the ranking Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, he released transcripts of Strzok's testimony to that. And when he was, test when he was questioned on the meaning of this insurance uh, policy t text, Strzok said, quote, we had received information from a very sensitive source alleging collusion between the government of Russia and members of the Trump campaign. Uh, here's, uh, here is Collins, who released the testimony, uh, talking about Strzok. Let's cut nine. Peter Strzok was a man who thought he was untouchable. He became a, a, a hero in his mind's eye and thinking that he was going to be able to control and sometimes maybe showing off for his uh, mistress at the time, Lisa Page, let's never forget that, but also in his own role to grow up in the department. Peter Strzok was central going back to the email investigation, into the Russia investigation, into what became the Mueller investigation. So what we're seeing here is, yes, we see the bias. The transcripts reveal the bias. And when we see that uh, Mr. Mueller actually got rid of him based on you know his actions and those uh, texts. So I think when we look at this together, we get a picture of, a, of someone who was brought up or, or allowed to uh, grow, if you would, under the Department of Justice under President Obama, in which politics became the foremost word, not justice. You know, I know the scandal gets so complex and I don't want to get into the high weeds about it, but it's really interesting. I mean, to me, if I'm a reporter and I'm looking at this stuff, what I think is Strzok said we received information from a very sensitive source. So this is sent, I think, about two weeks after the investigation into Trump uh, into the Trump campaign is open. Who's the sensitive source? They said they didn't have spies in the Trump campaign. Who's the sensitive source? You know, I mean, it, it, it's not going to be the Australian ambassador who they keep saying was the guy who helped uh, start this investigation off. I mean, they, mu they must have had, they may have had a spy in the Trump campaign. That would be what I would do if I were a reporter, because that's a big story. It's not a big story that Trump is tweeting about it. He wouldn't have to tweet about it 
if people were covering it. What Trump understands is that social media is the new journalism because it is the new source of information because the journals are not doing their job, right? Now, and people are catching on to this. There's a new poll. Half of Americans uh, believe that President Trump is right, that the Russian, Mueller's Russian investigation is a witch hunt. Uh, and they say that 50% of those questioned agree that the probe is a politically motivated witch hunt. 47% disagree. 3% aren't sure. Uh, and 62% uh, do not want impeachment to go forward, while 28% uh, say they do. 10% are undecided, and Trump was very happy, uh, obviously, about those results. But let's, let's just have, a, in our imagination for a minute, let's just imagine a world in which the mainstream media as one is trying to destroy this president and his presidency. Why shouldn't Trump be tweeting? What's crazy about that? You know, Ted Koppel, uh, you may remember Ted Koppel. He was basically one of the dean of journalists in the last generation. Uh, had a very, um, I can't remember the name of it, Nightline, I think it was. Had a very influential show uh, on ABC. This is Ted Koppel, who's no Trump fan. You can hear it. He doesn't like Trump. This is him talking about how the press is treating Trump and whether Trump, what, what it means when Trump says that they're after him. His perception that the establishment press is out to get him doesn't mean that great journalism is not being done. It is. But the notion that most of us look upon Donald Trump as being an absolute fiasco, he's not mistaken in that perception. And he's not mistaken when so many of the liberal media, for example, describe themselves as belonging to the resistance? What does that mean? That's not, that's not said by people who consider themselves reporters, objective reporters of facts. That's the kind of language that's used by people who genuinely believe, and I rather suspect with some justification, that Donald Trump is bad for the United States, and the better, you know, the sooner he's out of office, the better they will like him. So, so Ted Koppel, a respected and respectable journalist, agrees with Trump about this, doesn't like Trump. You could hear him say it, he doesn't like Trump, but he agrees that Trump is right. So if Trump is tweeting about things, it's because he knows he is the only voice that can stand up to that voice of ABC, NBC, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post. And they are so used to trashing Republicans and conservatives, so used to doing it without getting kicked back, that they are shocked. They think it's madness. They think it's madness. I don't think that's insane. I don't think there's any damn thing insane about it. I, just, I think it is exactly what Republican presidents should do. They should all do it. They never do. What they do is they keep their mouths shut. They keep their heads down. They look at their shoes and they walk quietly by while they're called racist and they apologize and they say, oh, well, I misspoke and I didn't mean to say it. And it's not what I meant. And Trump doesn't do any of that. And it drives them crazy because that's where their power lies. And again, you know, I have complaints about Trump. You know, I criticize him. It's not about that. On this, he's 100% right. And there is absolutely nothing crazy, nothing wrong whatsoever about going to Twitter and going to social media to counter the narrative that uh, is just raining down upon him. You know, 
just as a final reflection, uh, you remember that Jay Leno made this comment about how everybody's so political now and uh, on the on the late night comedy shows and he doesn't miss it because of that. And John Oliver, who does that last week tonight on HBO, I think it is, uh, John Oliver hit back against him. I'm not going to play it because it was kind of rude, uh, but uh, he, he played a bunch of uh, cuts of Jay Leno attacking Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, making jokes about their affair, which was, in fact, good, ripe subject for comedy at the time. And then he basically says, you know, screw you, Jay Leno, in his lovely, polite way. But here's the thing. Jay Leno made the point when he was talking that Clinton was dumb, Clinton was horny, and Bush was dumb. He attacked everybody. He attacked everybody. And that's the difference. The idea that they now attack Hillary Clinton fairly or the Democrat Party fairly, that they attacked Obama at all, is absurd. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the one-sidedness of it. And that one-sidedness, which is I, I frequently blame uh, conservatives and Republicans for allowing it to happen, for allowing the universities to be taken over, for allowing Hollywood to become a one-party town, for allowing themselves to be blacklisted and not using their money instead of pouring money into campaigns in congressional districts, not pouring money into making TV shows, making movies, making dis distribution uh, companies, not having an effect on information and on the culture. I blame them for that. But, you know, you should understand that Rupert Murdoch right now is completely rejiggering his movie studio, 20, it's not 20, 20th Century Fox anymore, but Fox movie studios. Uh, he's He's taking it down. He's putting it down and getting rid of it. I think he's giving it to Disney. He's selling it to Disney. Now, now Murdoch was never, uh, never cared about the movies. He felt that Hollywood was a lost cause. And so Fox has turned out lots of left wing movies like Avatar and things like that. So it was not any kind of a, a right wing um, arm. But it's just the fact that he's giving it away and selling it, getting rid of it. it tells you something. He's an old guy. This is, you know, I mean, nobody lives forever. Who is there to replace him? Who is there who understands the information market? You know, his family is now, uh, they're keeping the part of Fox that has Fox News Channel in it. But his, his, the people who are going to inherit that are not as conservative as, as Murdoch is and are not going to play the same game that he played and are sensitive to the attacks, the relentless attacks from the corrupt news media that does not like the fact that there is one station that stands up to their corruption. You know, this is going to go away. Murdoch cannot, you know, God love him, but he can't live forever. Nobody can. And who has replaced him? Who has made uh, a, a engine like Fox News that can do what Fox News does? I mean, certainly the Daily Wire is a great place, but we don't have their news gathering capabilities. Uh, I, really, nobody else does except the Wall Street Journal, which is also a Murdoch uh, institution. This stuff, you know, we let it go. We let one man do all this and it's going to end. And we should be really thinking about what is going to happen when it's gone, because Trump won't be there forever. Uh, people who can use social media like he does and people who have the courage to stand up to the press won't be there forever either. We're going to need systems and infrastructures that are, are going to be able to answer back to this relentless march of socialist, socialism and socialist propaganda. All right, back tomorrow with the mailbag. Get your letters in now so I can answer them all with answers that are 100% correct. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show.
The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Clavin Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey guys, over on the Matt Wall Show today, uh, we're going to talk about this this horrible story in, uh, about an elementary school in Virginia that has been caught trying to indoctrinate children into left-wing gender theory. Uh, I want to talk about why this is child abuse, for one thing, and, and also why the left's theories on gender are contradictory, insane, superstitious, incoherent. Uh, we'll discuss all that. Also, what is it about the internet? that makes people so depressed. I have some thoughts on that I wanted to share. And finally, Elizabeth Warren is proposing that we abolish the Electoral College. Is there anything at all to be said for that idea? We'll talk about all that today on The Matt Walsh Show.